I don't know why, but every time I get to this this time of year, I, I look at the calendar and just go, all right, you know, we've got, got plenty of time between now and the end of the year, and, and it's like we're on the Christmas freeway, you know, you've, 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 you've taken the off-ramp and you know, life is fast, and then all of a sudden you get to this time of year and you redline it and, until January 1st, and then you shoot into the new year. Is anybody else kind of like that? Feel like, you know, end of the year just sort of runs fast-paced, and, and in the midst of the busyness, as Christians, we go, okay, I need to focus on Jesus. You know, I so often have come to this time of the year, and I'm like, you know, I just I want this to be a different year. I don't want this to be about the presents and the wrapping and the potsing and the shushing and, you know, all of those types of things. But I want it to be focused on Christ. And it's like it's a struggle. It's like it's a struggle to, as much as Christmas is Christ-centered, it's about Jesus, regardless of what the culture puts out on the billboards and out in the window displays, we, I think, as Christians, really struggle to, to phone, focus in on Jesus, to hone in on Him at this time of year. And so this morning, that's what I want to ask or want to focus on, is how should we think of Jesus this, this Christmas season? Now, this text from, from Luke 19, 28 through 44, it's not, it's not really a typical, traditional kind of sort of Christmassy sermon or text. It's really probably a little more fitting and you know, historical sense for Palm Sunday or, or Easter. But in thinking of Jesus, the baby born in the manger, we need to think of Jesus, the ruling and reigning king, the suffering servant, the, the, the final high priest. And so this is a great place to go if we want to make much of him during this season. Um, and so that's, that's one reason I chose to go there. The other reason, too, is sort of as we've closed out our sermon series in Philippians last week was the, the last one in that series. It's the you know, question is, well, where do we go next? And looking back on Philippians, so much of what Paul wrote in there exalted Christ and made much of Christ. It was so much packed into Philippians that, that, Jesus, that Paul says, Jesus is worth giving up everything for, for Christ. That's what Paul emphasized. And, and the text that, Paul, that Alan preached from last week, Rome, uh, Philippians 4.19 really kind of brought some of that to the table where, where Paul says, and my God is able to provide uh, all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And, and so you come out of that going, okay, well, there's a, there's a Christ-centeredness here where the riches of God are bound up in all of the glory that is in Jesus. Jesus is the central display of God's glory. So we come away from that with. And so I want to invest time in that this morning from Luke 19. So let me give you my my thesis, the main main emphasis of what I want to get across this morning. Here it is. Jesus is the sovereign king who's come to set creation free from corruption, and yet he's merciful to those who are the very reason for that corruption. And this union of tender power should compel our worship and move us to mercy others. So that's where I'm going. Jesus is the sovereign king. He's come to set all of creation free from corruption, and yet he's merciful to those, our, our image bears, uh, or his image bears, us, who are the very reason for that corruption. So that's where I'm, I'm going. 
So we're covering a broad ground, but I'm not going to I'm not going to dive into every nook and cranny of every single verse. Um, I've only got three notes, three pages of notes today, so <laughs> try and keep it keep it within the boundaries. All right, so let's let's look at our context here. Here's Jesus. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is his march towards Jerusalem, and he's just days away from his crucifixion. So first, I want to look at the sovereignty of, his, of this march, his sovereignty in the march, and I want to look at his, his mercy. And so in the sovereignty of his march, there's, I got four points here. How do we see Jesus as sovereign, as, a, as the sovereign king here? One, Jesus knows the full scope of what's about to happen. And we see this in several different places. We see this first in the parable he tells just before this text. So look back at uh, chapter 19, verses 11, and when what follows. <clears throat> Verse 11 says, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he knew, or excuse me, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So you hear that. Jesus is near Jerusalem. He's getting ready to go into the city and he's got a band of disciples that's following him. This is more than just the 12. This is a a big crowd and it's growing as he's nearing the city. And he knows that some of these folks are thinking, hey, once Jesus gets in here, he's going to establish his kingdom. You know, he's going to fix everything. He's going to overthrow the Romans. You know, this kingdom's going to come immediately as soon as it happens. Jesus knows this. So he tells a parable to debunk that idea. And here's what he says. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the, the, first, the next couple verses are crucial. He says, So he said to them, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Stop right there. Everything that follows after this is post-crucifixion. Everything that, ha- that, that he tells after this parable is, is about po- what happens after the crucifixion. That little, that, that uh, well, excuse me, what he says there, he says, and no one goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom and then return. When Christ dies, he's the king who leaves to go receive that kingdom. And he says when he returns, that's referring to his second coming. So Jesus is already laying the groundwork here that this thing that's about to happen is much bigger than just a political takeover. This is much bigger, and he knows that. And he's trying to explain in a parable form to his disciples don't get all excited that everything's going to happen all at once. The important thing you need to realize is when I'm gone, you need to be faithful. And that's what he tells about the parable. He says, but the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Those are the religious leaders. Those are the religious leaders, the upper elites that say, you know, we, we want to kill this guy basically. And so he tells the, 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 the parable. And in the parable, he says, the, this ruler Gives, selects 10 of his servants and he gives them 10 minus. That's like 100 days wage, basically. And he says, go do business with this and make a profit and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to collect on it. And of course, if you know the parable, you know that he goes through those 10 when he returns. Several of them are faithful and they've made, you know, they've made money based off of what he gave them. But one, one of those servants was not. He tucked it away in a bag and when he brought it back, when the, when the, 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 the ruler came back, he says, look, I know that you're a hard and exacting man. Here's your money. I was afraid that I would lose it. No. And so Jesus moves, you know, moves on from then, and he chastises that, that man for it. 
Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the parable because that's a sermon for a different day. But the point here is Jesus tells the parable because he knows the scope of what's about to happen when everybody else around him doesn't. And he tells the parable for that purpose. And notice, too, his authority. Jesus acknowledges himself as that ruler. So I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the ruler that's going away to get the kingdom. And when I come back, I'm going to do business with everybody. I'm going to do business with the ones that I've given responsibility to. And I'm going to do business with the ones who are completely and utterly rebellious. Because at the end of the parable, he calls for those citizens who, who were completely unruly. And he says, bring them before me and I'm going to slay them. So Jesus knows the extent of, of what's about to happen. Look, uh, so, so he knows that based off the parable that he tells. And then he also knows the fine details of the immediate things that are getting ready to happen. Because he tells his disciples to go get the cult on which no one has sat. Notice that he says, tells his disciples, go, go get the cult. You'll find, go into the city. You'll find that there's a cult no one sat on. Get it, and when people come to you and say, why are, you taking my, why are you taking my colt? Tell them the Lord has need of it, and they'll let you bring it. So Jesus knows this. He's not just guessing, he knows this. And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah 9, where Zechariah says, your king is coming, humble, seated on the foal of a donkey. <laughs> Jesus goes, all right, it's, it's time, go get the colt. Go, go get the colt that's been prepared for me since before that time, go get him. And when they ask you, tell them the Lord has need of it. He knows that. He, he, he knows that this is, this is what has to take place. He also knows that the, that the Jews will reject him. In, in verse, verses 43 to 44, he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. He says, the days will come upon you. He's speaking to He's speaking over Jerusalem, over the city. So the days are, will come when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In 70 AD, which was, what, some 30 years later or so, the Romans siege uh, um, Jerusalem. And, and later, just a couple chapters later, Jesus warns the Jews and says, when you see the armies camping outside the city, flee to the hills. And they didn't do it. And when, when the Romans flooded the city, and it was, it was a flood of Roman soldiers. When they flooded the city, thousands of Jews, men, women, and children died. They slaughtered the Jews in the city. Jesus knew this. He knew, he knew it was coming. He saw it. And he warned of it. He, he, he prophesied of that. So Jesus knows the full scope of what's about to happen here. And that, that's important. That's important that we look at that and we see Jesus' his sovereign knowledge over everything that's going to happen. And yet he still continues this march. So he knows the full scope of what's about to happen. Also, look at how the, the crowds praise him for his miracles. In verse, um, verse 37, it says, As soon as he was approaching and near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Recall, Jesus had turned water 
into wine. He'd healed the blind. He'd healed the lame, the sick. He'd, he'd stopped a storm by just simply saying, be still. I love in, in the, the song we sang, um, It Is Well, it says, the wind and the waves still know his name. And the very one who created them recognized his voice and stopped. He created food. He fed 5,000 multiple times. He even raised the dead. Lazarus, come forth. These were miracles that no mortal person does. And the crowd recognized that. They recognized the power that he had, and they were praising his name. So the crowd recognized his miracles, the display of his sovereign power. They also recognized Jesus as the promised king. What are they shouting? What are the crowd shouting? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. That was what I read this morning as our, as our call to worship. It's a, it's a psalm that rests on the goodness and the loving kindness of God to save in the midst of oppression, in the midst of, uh, of pressure coming down. It's, it's a cry for, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. We trust that you'll save us. And then the end of the psalm closes with this proclamation of a triumphant march of a victorious people into, really into the temple. And it said, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what the crowd shout out is blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're recognizing Jesus as the promised king, the one of the divinity line who's, who's going to set them free. Because in the midst of that psalm too, it's, it's save us, save us. What does Hosanna mean? Save us. That's what one of the other um, gospel writers says, records also that they're crying out, Hosanna Hosanna, save us, save us. So you've got the Psalm, Psalm 118, but also from Zechariah 9. I'd mentioned that earlier where Zechariah prophesies of the coming king who's going to set everything right. And it says that Zechariah in Zechariah 9, he prophesies of the destruction of all of these nations that are surrounding Israel and Jerusalem. And he says, your king is coming. He says, your king is coming, seated on a foal of a donkey. Surely these Jews recognize that connection. Okay, you know, oh, this, okay this, is, this is coming true. This is coming true. And then he's a king. And so you're seeing these two prophecies coming together in Jesus, and the crowds are recognizing it. But the difference is they're looking for a political overthrow. They're wanting freedom from Roman oppression when the scope of Jesus' kingdom is so much bigger, and that's what they don't recognize. That's what not, they're not recognizing is the scope of his kingship. So the crowds recognize Jesus as the promised king. And then fourthly, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem compels the worship of all of creation. And this goes into the scope of his, of his kingship. Notice the... The, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, come in and they say, hey, look, these people are getting a little out of control. This is a little much. You're going to cause an uprising. Tell them to hush. It's a bit, bit excessive. Now, 
if Jesus were merely a man, what do you think he would say? Well, listen, you just, you, you don't get it. You know, you're not part of this. You know, we're going to accomplish something today. You know, we're going to make this thing happen. Raise the flag, hoist it up. You'd, you'd boast in what you're getting ready to do because that's your highest goal. That's all that you have the capacity to, to make happen, right? The, the best that the human political leader can hope to do is to m- bring about change in, in that system, in that structure. But what Jesus says is just totally out of left field. It's got to be for the Pharisees. He says, if they're silent, the very stones will cry out. Who says that? Who says that? I mean, either he's crazy or or he's the divine son of God. You don't say that unless you've got some clout behind you or you're crazy. He's effectively saying to these religious leaders, look, this is bigger than a hostile takeover. This is so much bigger. To point to stones and say they would cry out if these people did not. That's huge. That's huge. It's huge. Paul touches on this in Romans 8 when he says the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That creation was subjected to futility, to entropy, to breaking down in hope that it would be set free from that corruption. That, that all of creation waits eagerly with bated breath to be released from that falling apartness, for lack of a better term. Peter wrote and he says, this grace that's been given to you and your personal salvation, these are things into which angels long to look. This is a big deal. It's not merely about just you and what makes you happy now. This involves all of the created universe. The stones will cry out. If worship is the overflow of beholding greatness, the band of disciples recognized something great was happening. In in the midst of that little snapshot of what was happening in history, this little band of disciples recognized, hey, something big is about to happen. But standing behind them was all of creation and all of the angelic realm poised on the edge of their seat because the future of, of, of the entire universe hinged on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and everything that was going to happen after that. All of the prophecies, everything that was written in the Old Testament was pointing forward to this moment. It was a big deal. So Jesus' sovereign march see his sovereignty and that he knows the full scope of what's about to happen. He's not blindsided by any of this. And, he, and he's, he's working to initiate and bring all of this about. Go get the cult. It's there. Go get it. It's time. The crowd praised him for his miracles. He had those miracles, and they recognized that as a display of his power. The Jews recognized him as the promised king, but that kingship, that scope of his rule was going to be far greater and bigger than what they thought. Zechariah even says his kingship will reach from sea to sea. 
And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem not only compelled worship from this little band of people, it compelled worship from all of creation. It was a big deal. And so we see here's the sovereign king coming in, poised and ready to take over his kingdom. But here's where it shifts. And Luke tells this, and he builds up to this point. And then verse 41 is a huge shift. And this is, this is really the, the, this today's sermon lands between verse 40, 40 and 41. Here's the sovereign king coming in, poised and capable, having the authority to take back his kingdom. And verse 41, he approached Jerusalem and saw the city and he wept. He wept. What does that say? What does that mean? When the sovereign king weeps over the very reason behind the, the corruption, behind the destruction. And just because the sovereign king will reclaim his kingdom doesn't mean the subjects of that kingdom will love him. What did John write? First John 1.11 He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Right? Just because the king reclaims a kingdom doesn't mean that they'll, that they'll love him. And, and, and we know kind of the, the, the midst of this, right? I mean, we, we live in America. We don't have a king, right? Our ancestors left political and oppressed tyranny in order for freedom from that. And, and so we have a history of distrust of, uh, of monarchy authority right there. Um, and, and, and we, we naturally have a distrust of that. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. If you've seen the movie Infinity Wars, the, the character Thanos is an interesting character. And at the very end of the movie, if you've not seen it, you can YouTube this. Just go to the porch scene with Thanos on uh, Infinity Wars. You can see this at the end of the movie. But anyways, at the end of the movie, Thanos, who's the, he's the supervillain, he's gathered together all of the powers of the universe. He can control time. He can control everything. I won't go on into all those details. But he can control everything. And you see him display that. And as he's moving up to the end of the story, you're like, this guy can't be defeated. There's no way for him to be defeated. In the end of the movie, I'm spoiling it too, by the way, so I'm sorry. No. But he's sitting on his porch, looking out over everything, and he's, he's moved in this direction because there's limited resources in the world and his solution to fix it is to cut off and destroy half the population. And so he's moving in that direction, you know, for that. He's just going about it in a really bad way, you know. And so he, he sits on the end of his, edge of his porch and he's staring at this, this apparition of his, his, his daughter when she was very young, who he kills, by the way. And she says, did you do it? Did you accomplish your goal? And he says, yes. She says, what did it cost you? He says, everything. And he says that with, with watery eyes. And, and there's an element of, of us as you're watching the movie that I think if we're honest, we're, we feel a little drawn to him. There's a little bit of compassion, feel a little kind of empathy towards him. But at the end of the day, he's a bad dude. You know, you kind of walk away going, you know, you'd kind of be cool if you weren't trying to annihilate half the world's population. You know, but, but there's that tension in there. Our, our, our supervillains and our villains in our movies today, 
they're, they're very different from the villains of, say, 1950s, where they were black and white then, trying to, trying to overthrow a good thing that we'd figured out. Now they're more complex. They're much more complex, and it, 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 it tells a lot about where we are as a society, that, that we're like, you know, we recognize the world's screwed up, but we don't know how to fix it. We have a distrust of the systems that we've put in place, political systems, religious systems, education systems. We have a distrust of these things, and we don't know how to fix it. The world's messed up beyond repair. We don't know how to fix it because, if we're honest, we make poor sovereigns. We make poor sovereigns. You don't, you don't feel compelled to praise Thanos at the end of that movie. Because he's a poor sovereign. And we're poor sovereigns ourselves. So what's, what's different about Jesus as the sovereign king? That he's not this just tyrant who's going to sit on his porch one day and just go, well, I've done it. What's different about him? We see here in this shift in verse 41, he's sovereignly merciful. He's sovereignly merciful, and we see Jesus, the sovereign king, weeping over necessary blindness. Verse 41 and 42, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Let me comment on this. Jesus is the sovereign king and he weeps over necessary blindness. One, Jesus is not at this point, he's not impotently sort of sitting there wringing his hands going, gee, I wish everyone would believe. I just, I wish everyone would believe. That's not his posture. One, one, that's hard to make that argument based off of everything that's happened previously. All that he sees, all that he's said, all that he's doing it's hard to make that argument. But further back previously, Luke 9.22, Jesus is speaking to his core disciples. This is right after his transfiguration on the Mount of Olives, right after Peter has given his confession of faith. And he says this, he says, the Son of Man must, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the, on the third day. And later in that same chapter, he says this again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It's a done deal. He says, this, this has to happen. There's no plan B. So Jesus knows this is going to happen. He knows this is going to happen. So he's not, he's not sitting there powerless, wishing everybody would just believe so he didn't have to go to the cross but he's not callously removed from their true condition. He cries real tears. He feels real compassion for the city. He weeps over them, over their lostness and over their necessary blindness. Now, why do I say it's a necessary blindness? For two reasons. One, it's necessary so that God may be shown as merciful and loving. Look at what he says. He says, 
But now, but these things have been hidden from your eyes. The things which make for peace, you can't see them. They've been hidden from your eyes. Who hid them? Who hid these things? Is it not God who hid these things? In Mark 4, Jesus tells the parable of the, of the soils. And after he tells the parable, the disciples come to him and say, Teacher, explain this to us. You know, what does this mean? And he says, To you who has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. I'm going to explain this to you. But to those who are outside, they come in parables. Why? So that in seeing, they may not see. In hearing, they may not hear. See, the parables didn't create hard hearts. They merely revealed them. And they show us our need for a Savior. Oftentimes, we come to passages like this about things that aren't revealed and, and, and we're tempted to say, well, that's just not fair. That's just not fair, but, but we have to be careful because that assumes that we stand in a position of moral neutrality, that if we were given the light, that we would appropriate it, that if we were given the truth and it were laid bare before us, that we would do the right thing with it. We don't, the truth is we don't stand in a position of moral neutrality. Our natural posture is toward sin. Blindness is the default position for us. The depravity of man doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but that we're as bad off as we could be. Our natural posture is towards self-exaltation. We don't want God to be our sovereign ruler. We're like the citizens that say, that's not really what I want in our sin nature. And so those things are hidden from our eyes. He says, those things are hidden from your eyes. But in the midst of that hiding, God has shown his merciful and loving. Let me give you an example. Say a good king goes and he conquers a distant land, and the people there in that land, they're rebellious, and they refuse to obey his leadership. He's a good king, and these, these people are destroying themselves. He's looking out over, over this, this, this little town that he's conquered, and, and, and he's broken over because he's saying these people are destroying themselves. They're, 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 they're killing one another and they're just they're falling apart. They don't want him to be a ruler. Now he's a good king. King Arthur, if you will. No, he's, he's a good king. Now he has the, he's got the army. He's got the, he's, he's the bigger sovereign. He's got the authority and the power to force them to fall under his rule. Now in a movie, We'd call that the bad guy, right? He'd, he'd be the, uh, uh, and I can't remember. I'm drawing a blank. I didn't have this in my notes. <laughs> but he'd be the bad guy. He'd be the bad king that would force and force everybody into rule. And that would be a poor story, right? No, nobody would pay money to go see that one. But if he's a good king, because he's good, because he's loving, he sends delegates into the town to show them his kindness, to show them, look, this is, this is why you need my leadership. This is why you need me to rule over you. And eventually he sends his own son into the midst of that rebellious people to show that he's good, his rule is loving, and he's worthy of their obedience. Now do you see the distinction there? That in spite of his ability and his authority, his patience and his mercy demonstrate his goodness and compel love for him. God is the same way. 
that in spite of our rebellion, in spite of the Jews' rebellion here, he, that his mercy and his compassion are shown through Christ and through the cross in order to compel our love for him. If God is love, then he will demonstrate love for us. How does he demonstrate love for us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's a necessary blindness so that God may be shown as merciful and loving. Secondly, it's necessary to bring about the things which make for peace, namely our rescue. He says, if you had known the things which make for peace. Do you notice that one of the things the crowd is shouting out, glory to God in the highest peace in heaven. And it's almost as if Luke draws a direct line from that. And, and, and as Jesus says, you don't know what makes for peace. You, you, want your, you want the Romans to be squashed. You want to have land back. You, you want to have just a human king sit on a throne. You don't have a clue what makes for peace. The blindness was necessary to bring about the things which make for peace. One of the clearest examples of this to me is Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can look at it. In the, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, the author comes to a point and, and he says that he, here is God and he's in his sovereign plan, he's designed that the creation would be, would be given to, uh, would be given over to man. That, that, that the image bearer of God would be his vice regent over all of creation again. But he says, we don't see that now. Jesus has come and we don't see that now. And he reminds the people of who Jesus was. And he says this. He says in verse 10, it was fitting for him, for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. He says it was right for God to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Now why? Why is, why is, that, why is that right? Why is it, why is it fitting you just take puzzle pieces and you put them together. That piece fits. Within God's character, there is a balance. And he says it's fitting for God to do this. Why? He answers that in the next verse. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, those are, those are uh, believing uh, individuals, those are, those are people, are all from one Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. The image bearers of, of God there. So they're, they're children of God. God cares for people. That's a real caring there. So much that the, the Son of God took on flesh in order to bring us back to God. He continues, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the, of the same. That through death, now what's the, what's the effect of that? Remember, we're talking about the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. Not just horizontal peace, but I mean that write the entire universe. That's kind of a big deal. It says that through death, two things happen. At least two things. He highlights two of them. 
that he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, right? Cuts death off at the knees, renders him powerless. Death has no sting there anymore. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives, right? Christ coming and dying on the cross brought the Holy Spirit, brings new life to people. If that didn't happen, then peace would not be known. There would be no being made right with God. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here, here's Psalm 118, the triumphal entry into the temple. Praise God, bring prosperity. And, and Jesus is the one that blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is indeed blessed. He does come into the temple, but he tears apart the veil and he lays himself upon the altar. This is the price of peace. This is the price of peace. Blindness was necessary to bring about the things that make for peace. To rescue us, to bring us back. So you see how, how highly God values his people? How passionate he is about rescuing us? And that Jesus is the merciful and compassionate means of our rescue. It's one thing for a sovereign king to take back his kingdom. It's an entirely other thing for that king to lay down his life for the subjects of his kingdom. That's the difference between a tyrant and somebody who say, who's worth saying, I'll follow that guy. I can get behind that. The sovereign king is our merciful and compassionate rescuer. So what do, you, what do we do with this? What we do with this is we see that this Jesus who has a unique ability to bring together the paradox of divine sovereignty and humble mercy. Those are things that we don't really see fitting together in our, in our world, and yet it's right here in front of us. And Luke makes no bones about it. He says, here it is. Here, here it is. Jesus is a category other than any deity that, that, that human religion fabricates. So what do we do with that? Two things. One, hope that you consider how glorious Jesus is and worship him, that, that, that it would fuel your worship for him, that he's worthy. Marvel at the king who has the power to right all the wrongs in the universe. If you look at his sovereignty and just in this little snapshot of what's happened, all the power that he holds, it's compelling. It is. Not to look at just this little tiny baby in a manger and ooh and awe over it, but to see that as genuinely the sovereign king of the universe, the one to whom rocks would cry out and worship. But not only does he wield that kind of power and he's coming to bring that kingdom to bear, he's also compassionate. He weeps over your sin. He weeps over my sin. He weeps over the sin of people that you know. So this Christmas season, may, may you seek to dive more into the scriptures, seek to know this Jesus more deeply. May it fuel your worship of him. 
And also, may it, may it cause you to have mer- mercy on people who don't deserve mercy. Rem- remember in this, in, in this text, Jesus is he's weeping over the very people whom he's come to save because he knows I'm going to come and do this and you're not going to recognize who I am. Now, there will be people out of this who will be saved. Gentiles will, scores and scores of Gentiles will come to salvation. Jews will come to salvation. But in the moment, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve his tears. They don't deserve his mercy. How is your compassion now? Do you feel compassion over those whose sin has plunged them into destruction? It's easy to, especially this time of year when we're, you know, sort of the, the, the feeling is warmth and, you know, wanting to be generous and giving, but oftentimes we qualify that with people who we feel like should deserve our mercy. Right? Do you feel mercy towards those whose sin has plunged them into destruction? It's easy to look at people and when you know the story and the history and what's gone on in their life, to go, well, that, that's why you're in this fix. And you need to just, you got to deal with that. I don't know, I don't, I don't know that, that, that when we're asked to give an account for ourselves, that God's going to ask us whether we figured that out or not. So did you have compassion? Was your heart moved over brokenness because their own sin, their own blindness had plunged them into this destruction? And, and there's a truth about this that, 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 that maybe this, they're culpable for it, but at the same time, they desperately need Jesus. Desperately need Jesus. If Christ wept over a people who did not deserve his mercy, surely we as his followers should weep and feel compassion over people whose own sin has brought them low into destruction, but who need his mercy, who need the gospel need the cross. Jesus came to heal lives and that, and that through our proclaiming the gospel. So here's, here, here, here's what I hope this looks like for you. As you become, as Jesus becomes more glorious in your sight this Christmas season and you trust him to have more and more authority in your life and as you trust, you see that he's good and that his rule is better than your own. Now as that's happening in your life, you're, you're mixing it up with coworkers. You're mix, mixing it up with relatives, with people in the grocery store the Lord puts in your path who need the, his rule in his life too. Will you share his goodness? Will you share the goodness of your Savior and trust that he'll change their life? Doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. Doesn't mean you have to have, you know, transubstantiation figured out. You'd be like the blind man that says, look, I don't know all the details. What I know is I was blind, but now I see. I see you're blind. Let me show you how he showed me to see. Strive to see the gospel more clearly and the implications of it on your life and the lives of others. Because only in seeing how the gospel impacts a life will you be able to speak that gospel into somebody else's life. You know, we're we're the ten servants in that parable. Jesus says, I'm giving you, giving you gifts. 
So I'm giving you gifts. Be faithful with those. Be faithful with those to share the gospel with others. So I hope that's helpful. That stirs your heart. That gives you a framework for, for how to view Jesus this Christmas season. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father God, I'm humbled as I come to areas in Scripture that I've, I've read a hundred times and then come to it once at, a, at perhaps a, an appointed time and you open my eyes to just further the depths of your riches and glory in Christ. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is the sovereign King. He has the power to right all the wrongs in the universe. But more than that, He's good. He's merciful. He's kind and compassionate. It stirs my heart to want to know Him more. Tell, tell me and teach me more about this sovereign, merciful King who's worthy of my affection, who's worthy of my following, who's worthy of my life. Father, give us eyes to see that you would peel back the blinders, that we would see Jesus more clearly daily. We would love him, be drawn to him, and then give us wisdom to see people in our lives that you put before us who need his rule. May we have compassion on them. May we not stand in such a position that we think we've got it figured out and they've screwed their life up because of bad moral decisions. May we have compassion on them. May we see where they need the gospel. May we speak that into their life. That at the end of the day, we would walk away from that not feeling like we, like we within ourselves wielded the power to win an argument or to craftily devise a way that makes the gospel make sense and palatable to a lost person, but that we genuinely see the power of God displayed before us. We walk away from that going, wow. You are good. The gospel is real. May it stir us up to be ever more faithful. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Father, for the necessary things that make for peace. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.